Welcome to Tech Talk with Optimal Rx. My name is Kristen Gilmore. I'm here with Julianne Grant, and we are ready to talk herbal medicine. Kristen and I are both practicing naturopaths with 25 years' experience between us. As big herb nerds, we are excited to explore all things phytotherapy and health with you. Hello and welcome. Julianne and I are here today with herbalist Phil Rasmussen to chat about a topic that is very near and dear to our hearts and imperative to our profession, and that is supporting sustainability in herbal medicine. And we thought Phil would be the perfect person to discuss this topic with due to our shared passion for ethical, sustainable herbal medicine practices and Phil's wide-ranging and extensive experience in all aspects of herbal medicine making and prescribing. So Phil's been a phytotherapist for nearly 30 years. Previous to that, he was a pharmacist and worked in the research space. He's also founded herbal medicine companies. He's been involved in the manufacturing side of things, working so closely with herbal medicine growers and wildcrafters. And he's been a keen advocate for the incorporation of native and more local plants into the Materia Medica of practitioners in Australia and New Zealand. So Phil, welcome back to Tech Talk. We are so looking forward to this discussion around sustainability. Thanks heaps, Kristen. And thanks to all for inviting me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Um, and so we've established, I guess, that the, the passion is there for sustainability. But just to begin, we wanted to ask you why it is that you are so passionate about sustainability in regards to herbal medicine manufacturing and why this is such an important topic. I guess like a, a lot of us, like a lot of herbal practitioners, part of my attraction to wanting to learn about plants and learn about herbal medicine was because I found I always found plants really, really interesting. Um, in terms of the natural world that I was brought up in, I was raised in a pretty rural part of Aotearoa, New Zealand, and there was no shortage of bush and plants around me. And I just loved being amongst them, like, like many of us, I think. And that was part of the attraction why I decided later on to study herbal medicine. Um, and, and yet, you know, through my youth, like a lot of us again, and particularly my university days where I became a bit of an environmental activist trying to stop a new aluminium smelter from being built in Dunedin, um, there, there were lots of environmental concerns way back then in the 70s and 80s and even before. Um, it was a big issue for my generation, I know. And if you fast forward 30 or 40 years, if anything, the issues have become even more critical, more urgent, and there are many more of them, I'm afraid. Um, so, you know, we've seen ongoing environmental change and a number of plant species increasingly become under threat of extinction due to a whole range of different reasons. So um, I think we need to all of us take responsibility as ethical and responsible practice, like you say, um, to just try and find out more about where many of our herbs come from, how they're produced and how sustainable they are, and really endeavour to try and make things more sustainable going forward. Um, because we're seeing supply not manage to keep up with demand for a number of species, such as kava for a period a few years ago. False unicorn root is a very good example. We've seen climate change. We're seeing more and more of it. Drought, floods and fires have a big impact. And so we need, we need a long-term approach to sustainability. It's not an issue that is just here one day and gone the next. Um, 
and I think just as we're we're learning as practitioners and, and scientists and researchers about the human body, just how interdependent we are as living organisms on the health of the microbes that live in our, our bowels, you know, the gut microbiome and the health of the soil that grows our vegetables and produces the animals that we eat. Um, everything is so interrelated. All the different components of the natural world are really dependent on each other. And so to ensure not only a healthy and balanced um, environment and, and a future for our children, um, and but also to ensure healthy bodies and, and good health in general, we really need to understand just how these things are interrelated and how um, an impact on one can impact the other. So that to me is why sustainability is so important. You know, in Māori, uh, they say kaitiangatanga, which is um, sort of provenance and responsibility and, and governance um, over caretaking, everything over the natural environment and, and how humans interrelate with it. And it's not nature and, and humans being separate. They're very, very intertwined. So I think that that to me, tries. I've tried to summarise why I, I feel that sustainability, particularly with plant medicine, is really, really important. Phil, that's a brilliant uh, start to this podcast. Thank you for joining us again. So, Thanks, Julian. Yeah, it's just so great to be talking on this topic. I don't think it's talked about kind of on, on in a forum such as this very often. Um, and so I'm really appreciative of you joining us because clearly you are exceptionally passionate about it. And what I um, really admire from your life experience also is that you've firsthand seen uh, the impact on environmental changes or wild crafting issues, et cetera, through New Zealand natives um, and sourcing different herbal medicines that you've done internationally over the years. So you have probably one of the best insights into this, this topic that we could actually discuss with. So I'm so grateful for that. But just touching on wildcraft, I'm wondering if you could explain for our listeners the difference between um, herbal medicine or herbs and plants and fungi that are wildcrafted compared to cultivated and what that means in regards to sustainability. And do we know any obvious issues with wildcrafting that we could talk about too? Sure. Um, that's a really good question because, in fact, a huge percentage of all medicinal plants that we as Western herbalists and naturopaths use are so-called wildcraft or, or collected from the wild. So, and, and basically that is what wildcrafting is. It's essentially um, people who go out and harvest or collect plant parts or sometimes the whole plant from their natural habitat in, in the wild and in, in nature. And that's materially quite different, as you can imagine, from cultivation, which is, you know, planting, growing, weeding, caretaking and harvesting from plants that, that humans have intentionally planted, usually in rows and fields, just like we do with our uh, potatoes and, and our wheat and our rice and other forms of horticulture. Um, so the, the processes are really quite different to each other and yet the end result with herbal medicine is um, you know collecting harvesting and, and generally drying um, plant material for later extraction into herbal extracts um, and there are many challenges of each they're, they're quite different um, I think one of them is even if we want to cultivate rather than wildcraft which to me is a key part of the way forward to be more sustainable with herbal medicines we use we need to be doing a lot more research around how to cultivate successfully because um, it's quite alarming just how few species are have been well researched for cultivation 
Um, and even when there has been research in the lab, like with New Zealand's Manukath, um, believe me, there's been many years of government-funded research into how to produce the best varieties, produce high UMF or high MGI honey, um, or high triketone um, varieties of, of essential oil. And so they, they, the agronomy studies, the research is done in the lab and in the nursery. They think they've got all the right species. They plant millions of them out. And lo and behold, they behave differently when, when harvest time comes along because, you know, bees travel and plants um, interbreed with each other. And, and so it's not simple, this um, moving from wild crafting to cultivation, I guess. But um, there are many, many... Um, issues with wild crafting. I mean, even though practically it, it's where a lot of our herbs come from, there are many, many things that can go wrong with it. Um, and I mean, historically, and even historically, every country has done it. But here today, it is invariably many countries where labor costs are quite low. Um, it's countries such as India, Bulgaria, Albania, Poland, Somalia, other parts of Africa, um, where you know, if there's no local knowledge anymore or there's labour shortage um, or there's a pandemic perhaps that's been happening and so there's lockdown coming, um, the local people involved in going out and, and harvesting, um, often the, there's issues there. You know, there's lack of knowledge transfer, there's lack of staff. I know here in New Zealand, um, due to COVID lockdowns, the, you know, a lot of farmers just could not get enough people to, to pick the fruit or, or dig the vegetables. So there are many, many challenges. Um, and then of course, it's it's invariably dried in the, in the sun. You know, a lot of these wildcrafted herbs, they're not put in a really high tech temperature controlled, humidity controlled dry, they're dried out there in the sun um, or in the air. And um, you know, sometimes the rain comes when things are half dried and so, corners get cut, things get put away and, and bought out again, or issues such as mould, microbial contamination can become more likely. And also the, the wrong species sometimes, because um, often it's, it's, it's sole traders or individuals, often in very rural areas, very often quite poor communities who are collecting and then bringing to a centralised location. And, and the method of evaluating quality, that the right species is there, that things have been dried properly, all the rest of it, you need really good systems in place. So um, there are a lot of challenges with wild crafting and, and ethical and responsible suppliers are trying to meet them as best they can. But I mean, that, that's just a, an insight into some of the challenges. Another one that I, I read about recently was um, the fact that because a lot of herbs are collected and, and grown in areas where malaria is endemic. Um, you know, a lot of the wild crafters like to wear mosquito repellent so they don't get malaria. Um, and yet, you know, even traces of that on your hands when you're wild crafting might contaminate the crop and, and end up producing pesticide residues in the finished products. So um, these are just some of the many complex challenges that, that are associated with wild crafting. There are a whole lot associated with cultivation, as I say, but um, yeah, wild crafting, um, there's a lot of things that, that do need consideration. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot. It's quite an interesting topic, you know, even thinking about farming and going from single crop farming to biodynamic farming and, and all of those. And I loved your discussion around the 
the interspecies dependence almost. Um, and I'm just wondering, Phil, off the top of my head, if you know of any cultivation with regards to herbal medicine that have actually explored that, have explored, you know, even say we want to grow echinacea, but we know that another type of species of plant supports the growth of that and its constituent profile. Has that been done at anywhere? Yeah. Yeah, there's, um, there's been quite a bit and, and there is a lot more going on in terms of, you know, how do you produce, um, you know, high silicide or high rosamine containing rhodiola, for instance, or, you know, what soil types and, and what fertiliser, natural manures, whatever, uh, particularly conducive to high alkalamide echinacea, for instance, or, you know, high withanolide withania. It's not just the breeding of the, the variety of the plant, it's how it's grown that can really, as you say, have quite an impact. Um, and, and one of the factors I think also is, is um, considering companion planting. And, and I remember when I first got into organic veggie growing back in the UK when I was a herbal student, you know, I read all these books about how to grow things and companion planting was, was really critical to successful organic growing. And, and it just makes more and more sense the older I get really because nature is intrinsically not into monoculture. Nature does not want to grow everything all in one big paddock like they grow the almonds in, in the US. Um, you know, it wants variety. It, it needs, uh, it gets more stimulation. It gets more, that, that biodiversity encourages more of a diverse um, species range of insects and worms and, and other um, things that we know very, very little about that are all interdependent and, and help to ensure a healthy ecosystem. And so companion planting is really, you know, an area of, of increasing research. I mean, the same way they grow roses at the end of grape rows of vines, you know, to help with the bees, the bumblebees and things. There's a lot that we can do with companion planting of herbal medicine that can that can ensure not only higher levels of phytochemicals that the actors are after, but also uh, more resilience to disease, which is, I think, a, a real issue with climate change um, these days. It makes complete sense, doesn't it, uh, going forward. So I'm, I'm quite intrigued with that. And we're talking about cultivation and obviously there's, certain things we need to consider what and I know I've just been doing some research on agaricus and the the issues that agaricus mushroom sorry and so the issues that they've had cultivating that and one of the issues they have is the timeline um so can you talk a little bit more to things that we might need to consider or that herbal medicine practitioners need to consider when they're thinking about cultivation cultivation sorry with regards to timelining timelining or troubleshooting anything there yeah, and I, I think the, the biggest issue probably um, is the long timeline um, because, yes, a lot of herbs are annuals and perennials um, and access to the, the raw material, the, the rootstock, if, if you want to grow a new species and it's not been grown in Australia or New Zealand as yet, you have to get permits to uh, you know meet all the biosecurity regulations, bring it in. Um, and, and so it can take a year or two just to... to uh, build up or, or source enough uh, plant material to even get it planted to begin with. Um, and then you plant it and, and it might be an annual, it might be like an echinacea or a calendula and, you know, you could do it again the next year. But a lot of our species are slow growing roots and, and, and even slow growing barks um, and berries and things. And so things like ginseng, um, 
and, and rhodiola and golden seal, for instance, they take years. You know, it takes at least four or five years to grow a good crop of hydrastis because it needs shade, it's, it, it needs to be in the right habitat. Um, and arnica, if you're growing a field of arnica or growing it in, in the mountains where it likes to grow, you've got to ensure you're in the right location and, um, and, and it takes a while to build it up, to build up a community whereby you can then start to, to harvest. So timelines can be really quite lengthy and, and, and that is, has a huge financial impact on the grower. So, you know, you need some capital investment if you're serious about um, cultivating a lot of these medicinal plants because, believe it or not, you also need machinery, in my view, to do it commercially and, and successfully. Um, you don't have to. You can do everything by hand. But, um, you know, the world of economy and what people are prepared to pay and can afford to pay, and, and that goes right down to our patients as well as supplier companies and practitioners themselves, um, you've got to be practical and realistic. So a level of mechanization and an economy of scale is actually quite important when it comes to successful commercial herb cultivation. And it's got to be successful for everyone in that, in that chain, as I say. So um, timelines can be quite lengthy. And yeah, there's a lot of challenges. And they're very, very species dependent on a lot of these challenges, obviously. You know, arnica is materially hugely different to ginseng, for instance. It's such a, uh, so many aspects to one topic that is just really great for practitioners, perhaps even like myself. I know when I was going through college and, and learning about all my herbal medicines and you would learn this information, is it a perennial, is it an annual, you know, and the plant part being used, whether it was a root or a leaf, and you would learn these things from a medicinal point of view, but not always how it played into this larger ecosystem, how our plants actually do play this, this role that's so much broader in terms of the environment, even in terms of practicality of supply, like you were saying, Phil, and in terms of um, moving forward in our future with what we want to use a lot of, what we need to wait a little bit more for, where money needs to go in terms of research and and cultivation and all these things. So it's really great to bring all this awareness uh, to these to these aspects of this topic. So I think that's fantastic. And Phil, because you have been, I guess, so closely involved with farmers and wild crafters in regard to sourcing the raw material that makes our plant medicines, we're wondering if you had any positive stories about sustainable herbs that you've sourced or perhaps innovative ways that growers have embraced sustainability or shifted their focus towards this anything that kind of illustrates this for our listeners sure um i guess the first one that springs to my mind is is manuka um leptospermum scoparium which is of course native to new zealand but also parts of australia um and I know when I was being brought up as a, as a boy and a teenager um, in a rural part of, of my country, it was cursed by every farmer around. It was regarded as scrub. It was a nuisance. It was sold as firewood and still is sometimes. Um, it was deemed to have no value at all. Um, but of course, now we know it produces really good honey or the bees produce very good honey from the pollen, from the, the flowers of Monica. Uh, we know that it produces a really good antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory essential oil, um, particularly, you know, um, varieties growing on the east coast of the North Island of New Zealand. Um, we know that the, the roots of Monica 
um, are really good to plant where there's intensive dairying or animal farming because it helps sequester E. coli and other pathogenic microbes in the soil so they don't run off into the waterways. So there's many uses of this plant. Um, and yet, and it's been planted more and more, as I said before, they're, they're producing varieties and planting it out more. Um, but they're still only just discovering, um, you know, how the honeybee works, for instance, what it does the rest of the year when it's not feeding off manaka flowers. And, and one of the things they have discovered is that the willow trees in parts of New Zealand are a key food source of the honeybee when the monarch is not flowering. In the off season, they, they will often go to flowers of, of willow. Um, and so when there was a, a real shortage of honey, uh, a crop failure effectively about four or five years ago, they did research and realized that it was a particular aphid that had been introduced into New Zealand, was attacking the, the willow bark, sucking a lot of water out of it that was stressing the tree. And so the tree was less able to, to flower and produce pollen. So again, that shows for a, a herb that we have researched quite a bit in recent years, we're still just learning how vulnerable it can be to other um, organisms and, and impacts from nature. Um, so I guess that's a, a, a success story because, you know, here at Phytomed, we've created an, an optimal, um, we've, we're trying to create a market and, and create interest in this plant beyond it just being an oil or honey because it is a really versatile plant. It's an antimicrobial, it's astringent, it's, you know, you don't need to use any of those um, rare and potentially endangered um, imported herbs as for astringency, I think, because Monica works so well. It's a really good anti-inflammatory and very good for gut health, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we've educated people a lot about the use of Monica, and to me, that's, that is a bit of a success story. Um, as a result, we think they are using less herbs, such as Golden Seal. Um, we've done similar things with some other New Zealand native plants, like Kawaka and Pukatia. Um, but we've also um, worked with growers and, and wildcrafters here in New Zealand to, to source things like hawthorn berry locally. Because um, hawthorn berry is, is, again, used to be cursed by a lot of farmers. It's a bit of a weed. It was planted as a hedgerow, but um, it's quite a thorny thing. It's quite volumetic. You know, the sheep don't like it very much. Um, but by working with farmers um, and woofers, working weekend on organic farm volunteers, and that's partly how I learned how to grow herbs, um, you know, going to a farm and digging the burdock and realising just how hard it was to do. Um, by working with those sorts of suppliers, we're now sourcing hawthorn berries and, and the farmers are happy and there's less of this so-called noxious weed around. And another one would be Chinese privet. It's a very noxious weed here in New Zealand and the berries are really good, as we know, for osteoporosis prevention. So educating prakis to think more about a herd that might either grow really well in Australia or New Zealand or already be here as a weed um, to me, is part of um, thinking about long-term sustainable approaches to our prescribing as well. And that's a really great shift of focus, looking at weeds and plants that, like you said, farmers or, you know, people have traditionally cursed because they're everywhere and they're ruining things and gaining from that and, and using them as medicine. And, and it's so interesting that Chinese privet or glossy privet legustum um, is a weed, you know, it's it's something that is a weed and, and it's always so interesting to think of things that grow endemically and and really are everywhere 
and then how useful they are as, as phytomedicines. And it's almost like, I think I remember reading a quote from herbalist Stephen Booner where he was saying these noxious weeds are growing all around us, almost insisting that we notice them, you know, because they're just, they're showing up everywhere and, and ready to be used. So that is really positive and a really good way to think about it. Definitely an integral piece of the sustainability puzzle. So for herbal medicine practitioners, Phil, what are some of the major herbs in our Materia Medica that we should be aware of that are potentially at risk of becoming endangered? I think we've spoken before about rhodiola, um, Michella repens or boswellia, those type of herbs. So can you sort of touch on some of these and maybe why it is that they're at risk? Sure. Thanks, Kristen. Um yeah, there's there's a growing number of them, I believe, um, and, and CITES, the uh, Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. If you look at their website, there are a lot of plants listed, but luckily most of them are, are listed in Appendix 2. They're not in, the, in Appendix 3, which I think is, is the critically endangered. They're there because we just need to keep an eye on them. And there are a lot of them. Um, and, and I guess, yeah, rhodiola is definitely one. So is um, African bark or pygeum. You know, it's, it's um, the bark of a tree in Africa. And often people don't know how to take the bark off properly because, as I said earlier, it hasn't been trained. There hasn't been the knowledge transfer. Um, and, and so that will often kill the tree and, and then you don't get any more. Um, American ginseng is critically endangered in North America and Canada. Um, so it has to be cultivated. Same with golden seal, you know. Um, Boswellia is, is a growing concern, I think, because um, similar to myrrh, it's, it's um, a slow-growing tree, grows in very, very arid parts of Africa, particularly Somalia. Um, and, you know, with increasing concerns around pandemics, nasty viruses, antibiotic resistance, um, the value of some of these strong antimicrobial herbs um, and adaptogenic herbs like American ginseng, like rhodiola, the demand has just been going up and up um, for good reasons, really. Um, and, and unfortunately, you know, the demand is outstripping supply. I mean, rhodiola is, is a pretty complex story because um, most production actually happens in China and yet most wild crafting, and it is wild crafted rather than cultivated more, um, most wild crafting happens in Russia and, you know, Kazakhstan and, and, and Tibet and that region of, of China um, towards, towards Russia. Um, and, and yet there are many different species. And, and so the whole taxonomy, the knowledge of taxonomy around ro rhodiola, is it rosea, is it um, crinulata, is it serrata? There are a number of medicinal species that there's more knowledge about, in fact, in Tibet than there is in traditional Chinese medicine. <clears throat> and the local people involved in wild crafting actually know which are the best species or the best varieties to use. And yet if the monograph says, oh, we just want rosea and it's just got to be that, um, so be it. But, um, you know, the same sorts of challenges I touched on earlier with, with wild crafting occur um, and, and prices are increasing um, wild stocks are gradually declining because of over-harvesting and the slow growth rates. So um, one of the, one of the um, reasons for that and how, how contributory it is, we can't, it's really hard to quantify, but um, the snow leopard and the giant panda, which are both seriously endangered animals, 
um, they have the same habitat, the same alpine areas and, and several Asian countries where rhodiola grows. And um, what they found out a few years ago is that the yaks and the horses that the wild crafters use to go into these areas, they graze um, in areas and compete with this uh, sheep called the blue sheep and for food and and the blue sheep are actually a really important prey of the snow leopard so you know if, if there's less blue sheep around that might put threat on on the snow leopard so because some of these species like snow leopard and pandas are very very in the forefront now of international um, conferences discussions uh, collaborative efforts to try and preserve them more um, paradoxically or ironically that might indirectly help with rhodiola um, Ability. It might take the pressure off, um, but we do need to cultivate a lot more rhodiola, and we can do, including in my own country. And to me, it, it's an investment. It's a big investment. It's a long-term thing, and it's kind of a strategic, and in fact, a political issue. You know, because one company, it's really hard for one company to do it all. It needs to be a team effort, and and like everything with with herbal medicine and sustainability, it's. Um, it's understanding what's happening for the wild crafter, for the plant itself, right up to the end user, you know, and, and why is demand increasing so much? And unfortunately, demand for rhodiola seems to be coming more from cosmetics in recent years than it is from medical herbalists who want to use it for our depressed and, and stressed patients. So, you know, it raises all sorts of ethical issues, but, um, you know, we, we do our best to, to ensure it's sustainable and we are working on it and, and companies are working on it and researchers, but um, that is one to watch definitely and to just use with real respect, I think, as is Boswellia um, and definitely Pygeum. Look, I haven't used Pygeum for so long because, you know, a slow growing tree um, that grows in those countries is, is really a no-no, I think. So just continuing on, Phil, from the sustainability issues and, and those endangered plants and those that are a bit too far gone, unfortunately, uh, Optimal RX has discontinued false unicorn root and golden seal due to those sustainability issues that we're talking about. Do you have any herbs that you particularly like to use in place of those ones or other herbal substitutions our practitioners could actually consider in the name of sustainability? Sure. Yeah, fox unicorn was a real, real shame, isn't it? Because it is such a wonderful herb. Um, but but yeah, there, there are plenty of options in terms of, you know, fertility issues. Um, I use a lot of donkwai, peony, um, poria coccus or wolfie poria, pollen um, to some, shadowvari. There's no shortage of other um, gynecological, you know, fertility type herbs. Um, and if you're using gold, if you're using false unicorn for things like threatened miscarriage or menorrhagia, there's things like alcamilla, ladies' mantle, yarrow, raspberry. They're all very, very easy to cultivate and to source as well. Um, golden seal. Um, I use coptis these days. I mean, who doesn't? I think um, because coptis is cultivated. It's not wild crafted. It's much more sustainable, um, and it's considerably cheaper. And last but certainly not least, it's got high levels of berberine in it generally as well. Um, so, yeah, we do have a lot of options and, and even some other noxious species here in New Zealand and, and Australia as well, like berberus, berberus darwinii. Again, we need research because I think um, we, we could be using that as an alternative as well. 
And I know we um, often will recommend practitioners utilise Manica as another replacement if we're trying to alternate away from berberine. Um, Manica is something we recommend a lot too. Would you be on board with that one? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I use it a lot for all sorts, particularly where I'm wanting to look at the, the gut microbiome. I think it's a really, really good one, as is Horopito. Yeah, definitely. We love our New Zealand natives. And Phil, I was also just thinking when we were talking about false unicorn root, I know when we discontinued it and, and look, actually prior to that, when we knew of its endangered status and a lot of us practitioners stopped using it early on, it opened my eyes and opened my mind to look into research around those reproductive herbs that might do similar activities. And I think that's a really empowering thing as a practitioner. You know, we get we kind of can um, put herbal medicine in just one little box and that's what I use that for and there's no replacement. And I think it, it allows us to branch out, you know, to look that, at different things. That's a really, really good point, um, Julianne. I totally agree. With, and, and it's often only when people are forced to make changes or to think about something that they do, you know, struggle makes you stronger and, and you know, the whole issue of um, declining populations and increasing prices of certain um, plant species is is catalyzing increased interest and in a lot of stuff we've forgotten and a lot of stuff we've never really looked at and, and considered so that's a really good point yeah and it's really quite exciting times in that regard actually it is and chris and i were talking earlier and we we're just wondering if there's any resources that you can recommend for practitioners where they want to learn more on this sort of topic of sustainability and perhaps replacement herbal medicines or alternatives sure i mean even pubmed um believe it or not or google is often a good source of how endangered something is you know is this species really at risk and because it might be noxious in one country and at risk in another, you know, and, and the issues are really complex. So don't turn your back on PubMed, even for subjects around sustainability and agronomy. Um, but then also um, unitedplantsavers.org, they're a good website. Um, out of the US, they talk a lot about, you know, species and, and you know, and, and their sustainability. And there's a very good book that a lot of people have probably read of, read or heard of already, uh, published a year or so ago by Anne Armbrecht called The Business of Botanicals. Um, and that talks about a lot of these issues that we've discussed today in this podcast, you know, sustainability, wildcrafting, endangered species. Um, she goes right back to the source, you know, to growers and wildcrafters and talks to them as them and, and reports back some of their challenges. And, and that is so important to understand challenges from, from the ground up from out in the field right through to us as practitioners i think so there are a lot of other resources those are just some i can think of um yeah uh, that's a great start that'll definitely get people looking into it and is there anything we're about to finish up phil is there anything you'd like to say to current practitioners and and look even um not even just practitioners really it's it's people that purchase the herbs you know for their own use is there anything you'd like to leave them with regarding sustainability and, and our way forward I think, as you said earlier, Julian, um, take an interest in, in alternative species. I mean, no one herb works for everyone anyway, does it? So we do need to have a range at our at our disposal for most conditions. So just branch out and, and take a bit of an interest in, in some of these more, you know, Australasian-grown, Australasian-produced herbs and, and things that 
are likely to fare better with climate change. Take an interest in one or two or three or four species. Don't try and do it all. That's my advice. Just look at one or two species and think, hmm, I wonder if I can use a bit less of this and, and what could I use as an alternative? And then go and research it. Um, but yeah, there's a wealth of resources out there and there's so much we don't know. And, and if you find things out that are interesting and useful, share it with your colleagues. That's so important, I think. That's fantastic information. And I, I think you're right. I think if we can be open-minded and even open-hearted, because we often develop connections with our herbal medicines and our plant species, if we can look into that with an open heart and open mind to see what alternatives are. And, you know, but then we learn more about the plant. We learn more about the energetics of other plants and how they might suit individuals as well. So it's just opening up our knowledge base, um, which can only be positive, right? Absolutely. Yep. Phil, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today about this crucial topic. It's not just important. It's a crucial topic that we all need to embrace as, as uh, herbalists, you know, as, um, where we're at as a planet and where we are moving forward. So I thank you once again for your precious time. Well, it's a pleasure, Julianne and Kristen, as always. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, okay. heaps.